Welcome to the Data for Disaster Risk Reduction podcast series. This series is a reflection on the systematic use of data for handling the disasters and effective decisions for post-disaster recovery. It focuses on the role of data at each stage of the disaster management cycle that are mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. This podcast series would be offering examples of various disasters and the timely decisions taken to reduce the impact of the disaster and minimize the losses. This series is brought to you jointly by CoData, Tonkin and Taylor, and Center for Applied Geomatics, Theft Research and Development Foundation. Via this series, we bring to you reflections on the interdisciplinary approaches and the innovative use of data taken by various cities for disaster risk reduction, offering examples of good practices and lessons learned. Hi, this is Shelley from SEPT Research and Development Foundation. Today, we bring to you an episode on data for disaster-related statistics. In this episode, we have Kanza Ahmed, who is leading a pilot on disaster-related statistics in conjunction with UN Economic Commission Europe, OECD with UNDRR project on disaster-related statistics. She's joining us from UK and Papon Kakrudin, Technical Director, Tonkin and Taylor from New Zealand. I welcome you both on the episode. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Thanks a lot, Shelley. So today we'll discuss about the development of disaster-related statistics and we would like to learn more about the case studies, what you've done. Yeah, sure. So... I always think it's important to go back to the context we're working in. The statistics don't operate on their own in isolation. So it all starts with the Sendai framework. Sendai framework was published in 2015. And the basic premise is that we should be doing what we can to reduce the harm from disasters and hazards. And it makes sense. It's an obvious thing to be saying. But when UN member states started to adopt the Sendai framework, the first question they asked is, what is a hazard? Because if you don't know what a hazard is, you can't measure it. So we went through a process. So at what was then Public Health England, which is now the UK Health Security Agency, we went through a process with UN member agencies, private sector, UN member states, academics, scientists, and just get a whole load of opinion on developing a list of 302 hazards. And later on, what we then went on to do was develop what we called a series of hazard information profiles, which is the first definition of all of these hazards. So the idea was to develop a global definition. Those form the basis for the statistics. Because if you know what you're sort of trying to measure, you can then begin to think about how you're going to measure it. So the biggest challenge for us around disaster-related statistics is what are we going to measure? What does that look like? How do we define it? And then how do we measure it? And quite often people talk about the how do we measure it without thinking about how we define it. And that's been our big challenge with this project. Sure. So... Of course, like as you said, the what you're going to do it and how you're going to do it is major questions. But when we talk about statistics, there are records which are official and then there are records which are unofficial. I would say primary data and secondary data. And there would also be a lot of derived data sets, which would come as inferences by combining multiple data sets and looking at data which could talk about a story which is not exactly relevant to the data what it is. So how do you use the official and non-official data sets? And when do you use it? And for what do you use it? Would be Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's one that we're sort of a challenge we are grappling with at the moment. The projects that we're working on, this pilot project, is working with 
primarily with three countries, a high income, middle income and low income country. The premise is that we're looking at official statistics. However, we recognise that actually your official statistics are only as good as the data you collect and based on the quality of your surveillance systems. Now, for high income countries who have far more developed surveillance systems, they have far more official statistics. Therefore, actually, you have a more accurate understanding of what's going on with a particular hazard. Um, when it comes to low and middle income countries, the surveillance systems may still be in development or they may not yet exist. So one of the things that we've been looking at is what are the proxy solutions? So we know, for example, and the World Health Organization um, recently mentioned that only 40% of countries report 90% of deaths, right? Now, if that's the case then, the Sendai framework indicator, the first goal of the, the Sendai framework is around what is the mortality from disasters? And if we know only 40% of the countries are recording that information, we've already got a problem if we're relying solely on official statistics. So one of the key pieces of work we're doing at the moment is to understand what proxy indicators exist, i.e. what unofficial data exists that might be actually a proxy for official data until an official data collection system is set up. Quite often the focus is on official data products, but ultimately that will then make it difficult for low middle income countries to ever report because they're not in that position to do so. So one of the things that we're keen to do on this project is to get to a position where we begin to develop algorithms that are based on the kind of surveillance system or the kind of data the country collects, with the first algorithm being the one based on official statistics and a second or third algorithm being based on a combination of official and unofficial statistics, but giving us an idea of what the burden is without solely relying on official statistics. Totally agree, because it's extremely important at this point to get the substitute data sets in place. And many of the developing countries are still not in position to do the surveys and have the data collection method done, be it limitation of manpower or the resources. It could be also the financial expenditure which will be incurred to do this. So if we really want to look at this problem, what kind of data system dynamics would you want to propose? How would you place the data interoperability? And of course, the ever unanswered question of data ownership between interdepartmental data sets. This is always a challenge, um, especially when we're working around hazards, right? And if I take the example of um, an earthquake, right? There are several different government departments and you know NGOs who will have data that relate to the earthquake, down to death data, down to the you know geographical data, down to the actual impact of the earthquake. There are different organizations. One of the key successes of this project has been is that we have managed to bring together several government departments in each country to talk to us about who shares the data. And actually, in some cases, for the first time, starting that conversation. Um, and this became really strongly evident when we um, conducted our first case studies or the first pilot focus groups with uh, our colleagues in Canada. They had recently had some wildfires. And it was interesting because talking to the people working in the health department, they said, oh, it hadn't occurred to us that we need to be talking to the fire service. We need to be talking to the health protection people. We need to be talking about to the environment people because actually there's a knock-on effect when we're trying to evacuate people. We should be talking to local authorities and so on. And it was that kind of, okay, we needed this information and we didn't know who to go to. 
And so it's really important that actually people begin to understand, rather than talking in terms of data sets, begin talking in terms of hazards and understand who owns that data set and how it should be shared and who it should be shared with. And quite a challenge because at the same time, we're trying to develop something at a global level, but quite often within country, that information isn't being shared. And yet we're expecting a global approach to be developed. And that's why doing this sort of in-country approach with three different countries has been really useful because it begins to enable us to understand why people don't have the full picture what is it that people need and how do we actually facilitate those discussions? And we're really hoping that actually the focus groups that we started are the start of their journey to develop that sort of group working approach um, to sharing data and making sure that actually they're collecting the right stuff and also ensuring that you're collecting information in a way that actually can be used by different agencies as well. <clears throat> and one of the things that, for example, in the UK, we've tried to do this prior to COVID. If we were doing a big survey to the public, we put a call out to other departments and say, what questions do you want to ask? What information do you need? And then you actually only send out one survey rather than 20, 30 surveys going out to the public. It means you get a better reach, better response rate and better quality data because people are more likely to fill in one survey then 10 different requests for surveys. And so the challenge here is how do we actually get organisations, countries in a position where they're sharing that information? It's hard amongst government departments, let alone when we start to involve the private sector. We think about the insurance companies. They hold a huge wealth of data, but there's no system in place to share that at this stage. So there's a real opportunity here um, to kickstart those discussions. And I think it is a long journey. It's not going to be solved within a year or two. We are looking at a long journey, but I think it is doable. And we just have to to think differently about data and, and what that means for us. Thank you, Hansa, for putting this together in one of the best ways. And talking further, I would also, it's rightly said that when you are talking about organizations or collecting the data for these organizations, it's extremely important to ask them and get them involved in the process of data collection and making the questionnaires and also understanding which data sets would work for them, in what formats they want the data sets, and what information is exactly important for So looking at the applications of data in DRR, I would also like to understand a little more about what are the other data sets which are used, where the spatial data and mapping data sets make more inferences easier. Do these mapping better than just the statistical data? Is visualization interesting way of communicating the information with the community? And does it really have a difference when we look at the disasters? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think things like GIS mapping in both disaster response, risk reduction are absolutely vital if we're going to deliver this. The other thing that I find quite interesting is that I've had conversations with colleagues in NASA and they tell me they have a huge number of Earth observations that can actually be drilled down to a country level, but there is no current mechanism to share that. And that would actually help with the early warning system side of things and people having that advanced information and, you know, and be able to say, okay, actually, here's a risk, or we're seeing this erosion um, in this particular landmass, and therefore there is a risk of flooding because there are no more trees now to act as a barrier. And those kind of conversations. 
at the moment, a lot of the conversation when it comes to disasters and GIS systems has been around response. Quite obviously so, because that's when the panic sets in and we need to get data and we need to find out how to do it. And we've seen, for example, when we had the cyclone in Mozambique, it was actually the people going up with drones in helicopters and actually mapping out the flood area and looking at how big the, the floodplains were so that actually we could get a better idea of who was affected, how many people were affected, because ultimately the responders couldn't get out because the roads weren't there anymore, the infrastructure wasn't there. So GIS was absolutely crucial in providing that information for us to understand who's affected, where are they affected and how. Um, And so GIS definitely has a strong role in response, but I think it has an even stronger role in preparedness because actually if we're using GIS and we're incorporating it into the way we work and we're thinking about, okay, what changes are we seeing in the environment? We think about climate change, really important. We think about what's what's changing in the environment and we're able to prepare rather than actually going out once the disasters occurred. So I think that there are these applications that are available there are already discussions about how we utilize them. Um, and there are many different ways that we could utilize them. And then, of course, the, the issue is around, you know, um, open source access and where you might actually have to pay to, to access data. So that there's all of those conversations to be had. But I think there's real opportunity if we begin to be thinking about GIS and how that works with early warning systems. Thank you, Panza, for highlighting it. And now I'll request Bapon to add on and talk about his examples and contributions in this field. First of all, thank you so much, Haley, for inviting um, us and uh, also Kanza for joining. Thanks a lot for your contribution. Uh, I'd just like to maybe ask a question to Kanza because uh, if you look at the disaster-related statistics that happening, like your uh, contribution through UNSCAP, uh, there's a UNECE. There are also quite a leading role here. Obviously, the angle is coming from the SDG dataset point of view and also how we can strengthen the statistical department. But whereas on overall DRR side, there's a Sendai monitoring system. There are also climate change side, there's a Paris Agreement or collecting the climate change adaptation indicator. How do you see a sort of like imbalance between this kind of you know, triangulation to ensure a more data harmonization, data integration, and data interoperability point of view? That's a multi-million dollar question, Bafon. So... Again, it comes to actually getting the right people to talk to each other. And I give the example of the UK. My primary focus is the Sendai framework and obviously the Paris Agreement as well. And the SDGs are obviously a part of what I do, but not directly involved in that. However, I became aware that actually the data we were collecting around Sendai was slightly different in terms of data colleagues in other government departments were collecting around SDGs, even though the indicators overlapped. So one of the challenges has been is actually developing a cross-government group, and we're in the process of doing that, where we sit and we talk about Sendai, SDGs, and Paris Agreement, and having an Office for National Statistics there, having the UK Health Security Agency, having Cabinet Office and all the relevant government departments there to enter into those discussions as to what is the position for the UK and where do we need to be sort of focusing on or where do we not have data or where have we got a gap and somebody might have the data and that person isn't around the table. It requires coordination and it requires somebody to step up and say, you know what, I'm going to do this. It's a challenge because for a lot of people, their focus is on their particular agreement of their particular indicators and not taking a whole systems approach. So I think for me, I've had to invoke the lean systems thinking and the systems thinking approach 
to think well, how do we get that data and get it together we are in the process of doing it in the uk but again it is a journey because historically we haven't worked in that way because things have been quite based on departments and i'm i think it's probably accurate to say that we're not the only country in that position <laughs> and it is across the board it's just the way departments are set up but I think the great thing about Sendai, the great thing about SDGs is that actually it requires everybody to work together and it begins to acknowledge the importance of cascading hazards and that actually you cannot deal with things just in isolation. You have to look at the entire context in order to understand the bigger picture. Yeah, I fully agree with you. I think I'd just like to add in that point of view, a cross-domain interoperability framework is quite essential in this kind of situation because each of those organizations, they have their own way of metadata standardization, their own semantic. But if we don't have a, a standard semantic or schema, it would be very complicated task for overarching when we try to look at as a sectoral risk assessment, we need data from SDG, we need data from Senda, we need data from Paris Agreement, whatever it is available. But I think that's angle we are still like missing from department to department. When we are talking, it's a disaster management organization or NDMO. They're like now talking about more about how we can centralize the data set. Or even if you go to the mesh services, they're talking about, okay, how we make a one single platform where all the data could come. So that's good for them for their own organization. But when you're talking about this multi-agency coordination, that is a required actually cross-domain interoperability framework because otherwise it should be like, a should we think about like many to one or one to many? So that, that kind of perspectives maybe need to be looked at if you want to really harmonize and integrate the data for or risk-informed data point of view. Absolutely agree with you, Bapon. And I think, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, all the challenges it has brought, what it has done is also enable the kickstarting of discussions around data and how we share. And again, you know, where are the definitions? What definitions are we using? And what does it actually mean? And how long do you have to wait for the data? So again, in the UK, with COVID-19, the UK Health Security Agency has data around COVID-19 and our Office for National Statistics also does. So the clear sort of you know discussion had to be around who holds what data and it, is it validated data or is it initial raw data and how do we communicate that to the public when there are different figures appearing in the public domain and, and what does that actually mean and a key element that I think we haven't touched on is around how we actually then communicate that to the public because why do we collect that data ultimately it is to make the population safer. So actually, how do we engage the public in those discussions? And it's interesting, I was on a visit to Ghana recently talking about climate data and talking to civil society organization representative. And he said to me, statistics is really scary for someone like me. And yet actually, your civil society organizations are pivotal, pivotal in those countries where actually you don't have official statistics in place and they're gonna be responsible for collecting that data or they might hold data. So we need to think about how we as numbers people communicate to the wider population about disaster-related statistics, what that means and how it then influences policy decisions. Because if we engage the public in that, we'll have a bigger drive to get government departments and NGOs to work together closely because the public see the benefit of it. Thanks a lot. Fully agree with you. And I think in that point of view, this World Fair project is taking a quite extensive initiatives to how we can develop a CDRF, a cross-domain interoperability framework, and how that could be help all these agencies in this regards. But thank you again, Shelley, to inviting. And it's been wonderful to talk to you, Kanza.
Yeah, thank you very much. It's been good to be here. Thank you so much, Kanza and Bapon. I think the entire insight about disaster-related statistics and the, the data life cycle was very well explained and the importance and the necessity to identify why the data is being collected is something which every organization and country should look into. And again, before spending the amount or heavy finances on this, it's even important to get the buy-ins from the citizens. Thank you so much for throwing light on such an important topic. Thanks for listening to this episode from the Data for Disaster Risk Reduction podcast series. If you like our podcast and want to know more about the series, check out our website www.crgf.org and follow us on social media. Please leave a review and like and share wherever you listen to the podcast.